Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is March 19, 2014. Chances are we all know someone who suffers from alcoholism. It's a very difficult and trying disease, not only for the alcoholic, but also for the people in their lives. You know, we often ask ourselves why an alcoholic has such difficulty staying sober. Well, today we have the answers, and they will surprise you. Our guest is Scott Stevens. He is the author of the award-winning book, Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud. And we're going to talk about sobriety. He is a journalist with a Master's in Public Affairs Journalism. So let's now bring Michael onto our show. Hello, um, Scott. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to glad to be here today, and thanks for having me on your show. Sure. Um, I always like to start my show out with asking how you got on the path that you're on today. Um, I don't encourage anyone to get on that same path. It was, uh, uh, I think, early on in in my lifetime, uh, around age 14 or so, is when I had my first drink of alcohol. Like many mm-hmm. young kids experimented with it and um i've got the i've got the genetics i've got a family history of alcoholism and it probably if you, if you look at it today from the view that i have in the uh, great um ability to look backwards in time the uh, the way i handled alcohol back when i was 14 and into college and i didn't drink all that much at that time but the way i drank the binge drinking and never um, never putting it down, those were signs that my drinking patterns were not normal. But later on, it wasn't until in my 30s when I started drinking alcoholically. And what I mean by that is drinking every day, um, drinking to avoid withdrawal, hiding drinks, doing the, the types of things that are characteristic of alcoholism. And, you know, at that point in my life, um, things were still going pretty well. I had a great career, great house, great family, but um, my alcoholism just took over and um, gradually destroyed me piece by piece because I was living under the illusion that I could control this. 
And then mm-hmm. uh, gradually, I mean, I had uh, got into some legal trouble. I got four OWIs in six weeks, two divorces in two years, uh, you name it. I, oh. I ran myself into the ground, nearly died Downward. three times from alcoholism before I decided to get sober and decided to learn more about the disease and what goes what goes on genetically, what goes on biochemically, and also what goes on spiritually to help people uh, help people avoid the disease, um, and it is avoidable. The best way to avoid alcoholism is to never take a drink, but th- that's not very practical in today's society where mm-hmm. everybody's encouraged to enjoy their Bud or Bud Light or a glass of wine, but you know there, there are health consequences, and for some of us, the health consequence is the disease of alcoholism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know that you've stated um, specifically in your book that it's, it's not a crusade to cure people of alcoholism. No, definitely not. I, I don't do crusades very well. What I what I do as a journalist is bring out the facts, and there's a great wealth of information out there about what alcohol does to the body, even for even for the non-alcoholic. It has obviously serious repercussions for someone with the disease of alcoholism, but it also has mm-hmm. health effects for non-alcoholics that just don't quite make it into the headlines but there's a lot of research that goes on and as a reporter my job uh, was to report on alcohol and health and to to bring that forward into a book it was also looking at some of the new developments in how the disease of alcoholism is being treated how big a problem is alcohol abuse in the US well, defining it as alcoholism with the the disease of alcoholism, about one in twelve people have the disease, and uh, some estimates put it mm-hmm. closer to one in ten. But uh, basically, you're looking at around eight percent of the population has the disease of alcoholism. Now, another thirty to thirty-two percent of the population drinks in a in a way that could be considered alcohol abuse. They may be an uh, a binge drinker, they'll go out on the weekend and uh, just power down the the cocktails at mm-hmm. the bar, or you know they'll they'll have a regular drinking pattern, but they will not have a chemical dependence to the drug alcohol. So they would be considered alcohol abusers. And when you put those numbers together, you're looking at a third of the population all in that has some some struggle or some challenge with alcohol. And then part of this, and you, and you led on to this at the at the beginning of the show, Denise, and I appreciate it, is that mm-hmm. the families are involved here too. An alcoholic, on average, touches the lives of eight additional people, and they are probably non-alcoholic or their family members, and uh, that also goes into community members. And when you when you look at potential victims, whether it's a victim of crime or just somebody who has to end up paying the consequences for your drinking. So there's mm-hmm. a whole universe of people surrounding the alcoholic that also suffer. And when I wrote the book, it was uh, more of an answer to the question, why would anybody return to the misery of drinking once they got sober? Because That's our, a lives really good question. To, our lives seem to be starting to be well-adjusted and we're... we're mm-hmm contributing to society and we're doing great things and the next thing you know 
back to the bottle and back at it harder as harder than they were before. So um, one of and, the studies that came out. That qu- and, and can you answer that question yourself? Yes. Um, or is it you can? Okay. There's there are many people who advocate a, a healthy program of recovery, and that involves medical, that involves um, making healthy choices for yourself in terms of people, places, and things you associate with, but there's also an underlying biochemical reason why alcoholics are prone to relapse. This is known as a relapsing disease. A study that came out in 2010 by the University of Mm -hmm. Chicago, which was reported in alcoholism and or alcohol and alcoholism research that looked at cortisol, which is produced by your adrenal glands. They're a small gland on the top of the uh, on the top of each kidney, and the adrenal glands, in addition to producing what we all know as adrenaline, they also produce cortisol, which is known as the stress hormone. What this study found is that alcoholics, even alcoholics that are into recovery well into their recovery, we're talking a couple of years, have a higher baseline of cortisol, have a higher level of the stress hormone in their body automatically. So it's little things that people wouldn't ordinarily find stressful cause more stress for the alcoholic. And what alcoholics tend to do uh, just personality-wise is, <coughs> excuse me, they they internalize mm-hmm. all this and if you don't have a healthy program where you're continuing to talk out your your stressors, talk out talk about the things that are stressing you, the cortisol builds up, and pretty soon your body. Um, let me put it this way: alcoholics and non-alcoholics drink for exactly the same reason, and that's to relieve stress. And what an alcoholic knows best, even in recovery, is what is going to relieve their stress. And when their cortisol level gets so high, it seems like the only chance or only choice that they have they turn to alcohol and that is what why somebody would return to the misery of of drinking again well, you know the i i'm i'm not a drinker so i've never really understood um basically where you talk about how people will drink to relieve stress mm-hmm. don't they like the taste of it as well and that's why there's so many different types of drinks and for the non-alcoholic, that is a perfectly legitimate reason that people might choose to drink. For example, wine connoisseurs, they they tend to like to sample the wines or, or people who mm-hmm. enjoy craft beers like the different flavors. But what happens when an alcoholic takes the first drink is there's mm-hmm. no stopping from taking the second drink. It's like trying to slam a revolving door. You're just not going to do it. But an ordinary drinker, somebody who enjoys the flavor of everything, they can have one drink and and leave it, take it or leave it. They can can try another one that night or they can wait Uh two months. But an alcoholic has that first drink, that second one better be on on the bar and ready to go. Oh, okay. It has to do, um, by way of background, it has to do with the dopamine and serotonin levels in the brain, you know, the reward excuse me, the reward chemicals that mm-hmm. your, your your body's pleasure center in the brain tend to overproduce, and so you don't have enough serotonin in your brain to counteract all the reward chemicals, so you keep saying more, 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 more. There's nothing in there to say stop, 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 stop. 
and regardless of the consequences, like I said, I almost died three times, and you would think that I would not relapse because you know, I looked into the abyss, and it was right there, staring mm-hmm. right back mm-hmm. at me, and what do I do three years later? I go ahead and relapse. It makes no mm-hmm. logical sense, but it makes a lot of biochemical mm-hmm. sense. So it makes bi- biochemical sense, but looking back on it, mm-hmm. were you under more stress than normal or or not? I believe that I was under a little bit more stress than normal, but what I hadn't been doing leading up to that point, it wasn't just that single day where I was suddenly buried under a mountain of stress or buried under mm-hmm. a little bit of stress. It was over gradually over a period of months dealing with grief, dealing with with anger, dealing with different stressors in my life, dealing with forgiveness of other people, um, mm-hmm. dealing with shame, dealing with guilt, all those things that I, rather than talk about them, I just internalize them. And, and hmm. when, when a person talks about something, there's, it is very cathartic in that it helps them bring to the table and bring to the table the things that are bothering them, but it also helps to lower the, the cortisol level in your body because you are expressing rather than internalizing what's going on. And what I was doing leading up to that, that relapse certainly was internalizing things for months and months and months and gradually mm-hmm. it reached a breaking point mm-hmm. and there wasn't one single stressful event stress is a cumulative thing as you know and this is that mm-hmm. was my culmina- culmination which unfortunately led to a relapse after a, a great period of sobriety hmm. You talk about the symptoms of sobriety. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean? Right. When when uh, cortisol is in your body, it does it manifests itself in the way you feel, and you know, sort of like um, um, neglecting sleep or rest or eating habits. You know, that is a sign that your cortisol level is getting high. Or if you're having difficulty remembering things, boy, was this a big one for me. And, and that's a warning sign that your stress level, your cortisol level is getting high. Confusion, lack of clear thinking um, is another, mm-hmm. is a third symptom. Emotional sensitivity, another big one for me. I'm irritable when, I, when my stress level gets high. I think that I would like to think that applies to most people and that I'm not exclusive in the mm-hmm. department. But, you know, emotional mm-hmm. sensitivity is the fourth. Fifth is substitution cravings, um, you know, whether you, you're accustomed to drinking alcohol and then that's, you, you've taken that out of your life, so what do you do? You smoke a lot or you become a compulsive worker, a workaholic, as they say, or indulging in candy sugar. is another one. Yep, uh-huh. going for Crave the sugar. sugar. Isolation mm-hmm. is the sixth mm-hmm. one, and hyper alertness. And this is something um, cortisol problems also occur in PTSD patients, um, people with post traumatic stress oh. disorder. And hypersensitivity is another is a is a particularly or a, excuse me hyper alertness is another uh, particular bugaboo for people who have PTSD because you know sudden noises. Uh, uh, it's an exaggerated startle reflex in that. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. minimal noises will just kind of set you up or, or, or make you perk up, and that is that is again the, another sign that your cortisol levels are are unmanageable, and that you need to start talking about the things that we don't talk about in order to get some of that cortisol off your body. 
um, ironically, exercise <laughs> would help. Exercise helps. Right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. doing doing healthy things, getting your cardiovascular system going, all those things contribute to uh, relieving stress. Um, hot bath is another one that is has been shown to lower cortisol in a laboratory. Um, and also, ironically, the one thing, the one chemical that can relieve cortisol, alcohol. Uh-huh. But that's not a good choice oh, for, interesting. Some, for interesting. someone who has alcoholism. Mm. You know, we've been we've been brewing beer for ten thousand years for that very reason that mm-hmm. alcohol relieves stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our normal responses to cortisol um, they increase a couple of things, and that's why we struggle with sobriety. And, and again, what would those be? For instance, well, um, guilt. Um, Guilt is, uh, there are four main stressors that in my conversations with a number of people in recovery that have gone through relapse, there there are four themes that reoccur on a regular basis. Guilt, shame, forgiveness, and grief. And not dealing or not dealing appropriately with those four Mm -hmm. stressor areas are the common ones for alcoholics. Yeah, we have the garden variety stresses as well, but... You know, there there are some things like uh, spilled grape soda on the carpeting. Well, gee, tough break. Clean it up and move on. But these other things have a longer tail on them, and if you if you don't address them immediately or quickly, anyway, and in a in a way that's going to resolve the issues one way or another, um, unresolved grief, unresolved forgiveness issues tend to mm-hmm. lead right back to the bottle. How how did you deal with the forgiveness um, issue? Well, forgiveness for me, uh, there were, there were people that I was not willing to to speak with because um, mm-hmm. I was, and it ties a little bit into shame. I was ashamed of what I uh, what I had put people through as an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. to stand there eyeball to eyeball with them when I couldn't even look myself in the mirror is uh it was a was a challenge so i just avoided them um, and what what the way i found to deal best with forgiveness was to break down that barrier by becoming more assertive and and not, not aggressive but assertive and take the lead on this and approach the people that i was most afraid to approach and just bring it out on the table what's the worst thing they can do say no or say you're uh-huh. drunk uh-huh. you're drunk leave me alone uh-huh. well uh-huh. I've cleaned my side of the street, okay? I, I am not responsible gotcha. for their reaction. And that's a real healthy way to approach any of these things that you're, mm-hmm. you're most fear of mm-hmm. and most afraid of in a forgiveness situation is you're, you're, you're completely off the hook for their reaction. You're not, mm-hmm. Your business is not to make anybody happy because you can't. You cannot make another mm-hmm. person happy. You can make yourself happy. You can clean your side of the street, and and then you, 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 your chances of surviving this disease improve tenfold just by mm-hmm. being able to go through an amends making process, as they say in twelve step groups and other other types of recovery. Also encourage you know, dealing with your past in a way that provides that closure. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not always something that's you're able to do, 
due to a death, say, for example, in my case, my father died. Uh, it's, uh, actually, today is his, would it be his 78th birthday, but he died 20 years ago. He oh. was no longer around for me to ask for that forgiveness. And then forgiveness, mm-hmm. and, and I discuss this in the book on a, on a few pages in the chapter on forgiveness, is that forgiveness becomes a one-sided equation in that it's, uh, it's no longer a give and take. It's no longer a dialogue. It is resolving the issue within yourself rather than being able to take on that person or, or apologize or seek mm-hmm. forgiveness for some wrong that mm-hmm. they've done that, that you've, uh, you've ignorantly stomached for a number of years. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Well, I'm sure that uh, everybody goes through that in one form mm-hmm. or another in their lifetime. Mhm. And it's just how we we deal with grief and loss. Mhm. Um, there are a lot of good books out there that deal with grief, uh, that deal independently with grief with shame, mm-hmm. with forgiveness. What I've done in researching mm-hmm. this book is gone through uh, about seven dozen different magazines, publications, and especially books to pull out the best of the thinking that's out there, the best of the writing. And the, the mm-hmm. writers like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, for example, on grieving, she wrote in 1969 probably the the Bible on the, on the grief process, which was never intended to be... A, a Bible about grief. It was intended to be how to handle mm-hmm. news that you have a terminal illness. But as it applies mm-hmm. to alcoholics, those five stages of grieving are very important because not only do we have to deal with them with other people when they pass, but we also have to deal with them in reconciling a lifestyle within us that has died. We, we're, we're not mm-hmm. living that alcoholic lifestyle. And and for many people, that was their entire identity, and that has all changed when you take away the bottle. So now what? Well, yes, you have to move on, but first you have to appropriately go through the, the steps of anger and, and um, to bargaining to, to address and put a closure on the grief over your old lifestyle and your old way of being. Was there any one event that um, motivated you to uh, look into the um, biological reasons for alcoholism? Or was it, you know, was there something that just happened? Or I'm kind of curious how you, mm-hmm. um, you went down that path because most alcoholics probably wouldn't. Mm-hmm. When I... When I first got help for my alcoholism, I went to an inpatient rehab, uh, Valley Hope in Arizona, and Mm -hmm. I I had some real good doctors there, and they started to tell me about the genetics of alcoholism, and and that really, really flicked a switch for the nerd in me that said, you know, Ah. that is really interesting, and it was about that time, and I never knew this growing up, but it, my father was an alcoholic. Only in conversations with my my family after he passed away, and went, once I was in rehab, did I find out that oh, my dad was. And, I, and then this this genetic thing started to click with me. And at the same time, the human genome product project was wrapping up, and there was all sorts of exciting research 
going on in the field of alcoholism and genetics, and they've isolated a couple of chromosomes, uh-huh. chromosome 4, 4Q and chromosome 11, that uh, commonly in alcoholics there are flaws within those chromosomes, and, and it's genetic, it's passed down through generation. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it. Like I say, you can avoid alcoholism Is it altogether, recessive? Is it, but is you're, it you're more receptive. Recessive? Is it considered a recessive gene, or like yeah. if there's four children, maybe one out of the four? Yes, one might out of the four. be an alcoholic? It, it tends to go through males more than females, but that doesn't mean this isn't a female thing. It, it, uh-huh. What I mean by that is it goes through the male side of the family. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. It, it, oh, and yeah. that's... That doesn't mean it has to. It's just statistically that's where where it goes. And mm-hmm. you know, the the genetics part of it was was very fascinating to me, and that's what got me looking into more about the the genes, of course, but also what okay, what do those genes control? Those genes control how there you go how the enzymes in your body process the alcohol. And the alcohol dehydrogenase is an enzyme within the liver, and one of those chromosomes, I believe it's 4Q, it controls that. And additionally, there's a, the chromosome 11 controls how your brain processes the balance between serotonin and dopamine. So those connections started to, to make sense for me. And then what I found out as I was looking at more and more of these different pieces of research is it didn't seem like any of these researchers were talking to each other, that they were doing a great piece of, of research, very well documented and backed up, um, evidence-based, but none of it didn't seem like there was much coordination between the two. And when you started lining up the pieces and looking at, okay, this is how your body processes alcohol. This is what alcohol does to your does to your serotonin levels. This is what happens with cortisol when all these things, all these pieces started clicking together. Then I was like, yes, absolutely, I, I've got to put this down on paper. So, mm-hmm. and I think the next great frontier in medicine is really looking at. A, all the, there's more than 60 diseases that are caused by alcohol, um, looking at the relationship between alcohol and health, and B, looking at how alcoholism is treated, not meaning that they're, they're going to invent one magic silver bullet to cure this thing, but look at how the entire physical, physiological interaction within the body takes place and how to address the symptoms and the cause, you know, looking at not just this person drinks a lot, how do we keep them from putting alcohol in their body, but how do we manage a lack of alcohol dehydrogenase and enzyme in their body rather than rather than putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms, look for mm-hmm. what's underlying them. And I think really that is the next great frontier in medicine. What would you say is the number one disease out of a result of alcoholism? Is it cirrhosis of the liver or is it kidneys? Um, Diabetes, what is it? Well, like I said, it's tied to 60 different diseases. Um, they're, the number one killer in the United States, or number one killer is cardiovascular disease, and alcoholism is also, or alcohol use, not necessarily, you don't have mm-hmm. to be alcoholism, or don't have to have alcoholism to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, you look at 
number two on the list is cancer. Well, alcohol is a carcinogen, whether you're alcoholic or not. Anytime you take a drink, you're putting a toxic carcinogen in your body. So alcohol also plays Mm -hmm. into the number two cause of death. Number three cause of death in the United States, alcohol, 88,000 deaths a year. And only one in eight of those. Number third? Oh. Yep. And only one in eight of those deaths happens behind the wheel. We, had, we spend a lot of energy, thank you, to Mothers Against Drunk Driving for their mm-hmm. efforts on bringing this to the national, national attention the way they have and changing all the mm-hmm. laws. But that's not the only way that alcohol kills. One in eight alcohol-related deaths. You, you look at other causes of, or other illnesses, aside from the cancer, aside from the cardiovascular, and it does contribute most to those, but cirrhosis of the liver and liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, and cancers of the throat, larynx, esophagus, um, basically head and neck mm-hmm. type of cancers are all their number one, the number one risk factor in all of those is alcohol consumption. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be the, the guy swilling down bottles of Jack Daniels like they're going out of style. It can just be what we consider moderate drinking because it is a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm doing so, for Alcohol Awareness ahead. Month, which is coming up, is that we'll, I'll be putting together a list of these 60 different diseases that alcohol is related to because I think there's generally a lack of public knowledge that alcohol has all these adverse health effects. There, There's been... Um, observational data in the past that says, Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. alcohol can help with depression. Well, that's an Mm -hmm. observational piece. It's not not evidence-based. And Mm -hmm. when you look at the evidence-based studies, alcohol worsens depression. So, you know, where there's conflicting pieces of evidence or conflicting reports out there. So to pull all those together, looking at its relationship to depression, liver disease, blood diseases, obesity. Um, people think that, oh, I can, I can drink the alcohol because there isn't much calories in it if I mix it with diet soda. Well, that brings out two problems. First of all, you're going to get drunker quicker because of the way diet soda is processed by the body. And second of all, alcohol does, in fact, have a lot of calories in it. So you, even though you think you're not consuming a lot of calories, you're consuming 100% dead calories because they have no nutritional value to them at all. It is just a, a it's, you're, you're drinking it for the relief, the buzz, the, or the flavor that's surrounding the alcohol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what would you say to a listener who's currently battling alcoholism? I, I know the pain. I definitely know the pain and the frustration because there's there's quite a bit of stigma in the in the public, and that's the next book that I'm working on, uh, by the way. But there's there's a lot of stigma around alcoholism. Why can't you just you know this is this is a moral problem with you? What's wrong with you? Or wh- why can't you think your way out of this? And this is not an issue of willpower. This is not an issue of a moral failing, this is something that's biochemically imbalanced with your body. And when you're looking at stopping drinking, 
it's it's a great health choice for you and for the people around you but it's not something that you can do by yourself it's not encouraged because those three times that i nearly died one of them was from withdrawal alcohol withdrawal is one of only two oh. drugs that the withdrawal can be fatal um, benzodiazepines are the other think of over the counter or not oh, excuse me not over the counter uh-huh. but you know like your xanax for example those, that's mm-hmm. a benzodiazepine, and benzodiazepine withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal are the only two drugs that the withdrawal can be fatal. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to stop drinking, go through a medically supervised detox, uh, especially if you're a heavy drinker or have a, a long history of drinking. Your body, your, phys- your, your tissues are physically dependent on it, and when you take that away, your body is going to rebel. My, my, uh, my own situation, when I almost passed away, I had... Uh, a bunch of seizures, and then my blood pressure crashed down to 49 over 17, and it was not looking good. But, um, mm, mm, mm. but I was at a hospital when that happened, rather than being at home. Had I been at home, mm-hmm. this conversation probably would not be taking place. Mm-hmm. But alcohol withdrawal is a very serious, very, very serious condition that needs to be addressed medically. What they do is they, they try to ease your way out of it. In fact, they'll, they usually tranquilize you a, a little bit using Librium, for example, as a, as a sedative to take off the, the hard edge of withdrawal, like the shakes. They also give you an anticonvulsant or an anti-seizure type medicine to keep you from having the seizures to begin with. It can be pretty traumatic, especially for the people around you who are thinking, hey, he's, he's stopped drinking. Why is, he, why is he falling apart? So the, but during those you, first 48 aren't hours... Of, about somebody, aren't you talking about somebody who's been binging? Or, or is this the same for someone who just has a, a drink, one or two drinks a day? No, and they this, can't this is go go a day without it, without it. Would they have to go through this type of a program as well? If if it's a person who can't go through a day without alcohol, they're an alcoholic and they are chemically dependent on this. It is encouraged for anybody who's trying to stop drinking alcohol not to do it without talking to a doctor. In 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 okay. cases in cases where mm-hmm. the severe drinker, where there's a lot of drinking going on, I drank two liters of Jack Daniels at a minimum per day. And for me, there was no other way but medical. That's, that's a lot. So, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it didn't, it was, I was a maintenance drinker. I was just trying to stay ahead of withdrawal, just trying to stay, keep my blood oh. alcohol level just high enough so I could function and not fall apart. I wasn't drinking to get. So is that is is that just is that the description of a functioning alcoholic then? Whether it's two bottles of of Jack Daniel Daniels a day or it's two drinks a day. Well, I, I like the I like the word functioning alcoholic because none of us are really functioning when you when you put the rubber to the road on that. <laughs> yeah, nobody is functioning with with that You're right. kind of dependency. Um, a maintenance right. drinker is is somebody who has to drink or else they're they're not feeling normal. That is their normal. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I did not feel normal at all. Normal. Right. Because that mm. that is what your your tissues have adapted to alcohol. That is what your your tissues are functioning on. So um, 
to be a maintenance drinker, you are maintaining the alcohol level in your body, whether you're, in my case, not letting it get down to 0.00 blood alcohol concentration. But in other cases, if a person at the end of the day is feeling kind of sweaty and has to stop at the bar or stop off and pick up a couple of, of nightcaps for at home or instantly hit the fridge, then, then that's dependency. That is That has become more mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. casual drinking. A casual drinker can can go months without having a drink. And and by and large, excuse me, most of the population is non-alcoholic. They they don't have a challenge with alcohol, but if you have to have mm-hmm. a drink every day, one quiz one uh, question I like to pose to anybody who's wondering if they are alcoholic is give yourself a two drink minimum or excuse me, two drink minimum. I sound like a bar. <laughs> um, give yourself, give yourself a two drink maximum per day, and you can't dip into the following day. You can't say, "Oh, I had one yesterday, so I can have three today." Two drinks, and <laughs> if, if you can stick to two drinks a day, you're, you're not alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But if if that drives you completely out of your skin, if if you find yourself cheating, sneaking, any of that stuff then, yeah, mm-hmm. you've got a challenge with alcohol. And you know, at that point, your body physically tells you. You don't have to have somebody, uh, a wife, a husband, anybody shouting mm-hmm. you down saying mm-hmm. you've got a drinking problem. You can find out on your own just by giving mm-hmm. yourself that honest, honest test. That's a good test. I hope that uh, listeners heard that. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of other tests I put uh, in my first book, which was every, or uh, excuse me, what the early worm gets. I put a couple of the standardized tests that um, institutions give out. You know, they'll ask you a certain set of questions to determine mm-hmm. um, your your dependency. You know, if you answered yes to any one of these, you're alcohol dependent. And I, and I tend to think that people cheat more often on those than they don't, because if you're if you're taking that test, somebody is giving you that test, and that means you're interacting with somebody. And, um, alcoholics, we we don't have the market cornered on lying, but we're pretty pretty good at it. So we're we're gonna if you're threatening to take away our alcohol because of this test, we're we're probably gonna fudge it on you. Mm-hmm. But this this other test, giving yourself a two drink test like that, um, certainly I'm I'm not endorsing. Um, going out and, and drinking, but if if you have those kind of questions, <laughs> yeah, I think it, I'll, go, I'll go have two yeah. drinks a day and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, the Stevens guy on, on Blog Talk Radio said go out and drink. No, uh, that's not where I'm headed with <laughs> no, this. No, 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 and, no. And certainly no. don't drive. We're just trying to figure out the the body's tolerance level and the genetics mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and and tolerance. I mean, some people can can stop and some can't. Mm-hmm. Tolerance is another another good sign, um, and like I alluded to at the start of the conversation, when I when I first drank way back when I was fourteen, um, I had an incredible tolerance. I, my friends would drink, and uh, they would be all silly and stuff, and I'd be like, "Okay, where's the next one?" You know, it didn't seem mm-hmm. to have that same effect on me, and that is one of the signs of of the disease of alcoholism is that you have a tolerance that that so-called normal people don't have. And oh. if, if I knew then what I know now, then you know, the, the warning sign was there as early as age 14. 
but I didn't, uh, like I said, at, at my in my youth, I wasn't drinking a whole lot. Um, I drank mm-hmm. maybe twice a year. It wasn't until I got into my 30s and into a, a stable career and everything else that I decided to throw it all away and start drinking, drinking alcoholically. I'm getting, um, uh, turning the turning the interview back just a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. You wrote an earlier book called "What the Early Worm Gets." Right. Where did that title come from? Well, that the book has to deal with the the concept of treatment versus mistreatment, and where okay. coerced treatment does not work with alcoholics. The the only way treatment works with alcoholics is there has to be a willingness to change. And some people say, well, I would say you can't, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. It's that old adage. But, you know, some some people in the the treatment profession will say, but you can make them thirsty. And I I buy that to an extent. If if they see what's happening in in people in recovery, maybe they'll catch it, maybe they won't. I don't think you make the horse thirsty by drowning them. And by coercing somebody Mm -hmm. into treatment, essentially, that's what you're doing. You're turning them off to that type. And that's what what the early worm gets was about. And in my own situation, I was always the early bird that got the worm. I was up before every sunrise. I was ready to crack at it, go to work, worked in the mutual fund industry. So I worked early, worked late. Um, And when the alcohol took over my life, I found out, well, yeah, the early early bird gets the worm, but what does the early worm get? He gets eaten. And that's what happened to me. I was the early worm rather than the early bird. And that's where that title came oh, from. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I always like to know where people come up with the titles for their books. Mm-hmm. So there's always a story behind it. That's what's so interesting about it. So for an alcoholic, going forward, mm-hmm. for for instance, you've um, – are you an advocate of um, AA for alcoholics, believe, or do you believe that th- there's more needed than just that? In other words, it's a good support group, but does it really get to the root of your issues? Well, where I come down on, on recovery in general is um, if you want to go to AA, if you want to go to celebrate recovery, which is another form of 12-step groups, which is more of a Christian-oriented group, if you want to go to Women mm-hmm. for Sobriety, if you want to go to Smart Recovery, I don't care if you want to worship crop circles. If that's what's going to keep you sober, by all means do it. Um, but mm-hmm. you need what you need most in recovery is other people in recovery. So wherever that takes you, whether it's your church, whether it's your 12-step group, or whether it's just a community organization that you've gotten involved with that has other people in recovery that know the road that you're on, know the, know the steps that you're taking, whether they're the 12 steps or just your day-by-day steps to get through life, you need other people in recovery. I personally, I attend a 12-step meeting. I go to AA meetings and... I also am starting a Men for Sobriety meeting, which will be the first Men for Sobriety meeting in the United States. It's fairly popular up in Canada, but it's a spinoff of Women for Sobriety, which has been around since 1976, and it is, again, a 
oriented around recovery and talking about things, working together to solve our common problem with alcoholism. It's a little different than AA, but the the idea of most self-help groups like that is to bring together people with that common problem and, and brainstorm together, talk about how we solved it and how we can solve it together rather than thinking that you're alone in this. And we, as alcoholics, <coughs> excuse me, have this this tendency to think we're somehow terminally unique in that nobody else has these problems, and then we sit down in these meetings and say, everybody's got the same problems I have. So then it, it becomes uh, you know, a big aha moment that, hey, I'm not alone after all. And that is the, the big value in all of these types of meetings. And like I said, I, I'm uh, a believer in AA. I guess I'm not so anonymous after all, but it's it's good. <laughs> it's good for me, and um, I, I owe my life in a large, large extent to Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship that I get around the tables. The Men for Sobriety, mm-hmm. I believe, offers the same thing to people who, for one reason or another, are turned off by AA. There, mm-hmm. But before you get into to self-help groups, I think that there there is a certain amount of reprogramming that is important for, for a person in recovery. Some people don't need it, but uh, a mm-hmm. type of inpatient or outpatient program, if you can afford it, if your insurance covers it, and with the changes mm-hmm. in your insurance laws, more are because it's treated as uh, on parity with other medical disorders now, or will be, but to mm-hmm. have that ability to sit through a program of intensive outpatient or inpatient to work on establishing a, a new, not a culture, but a new routine, a new way of approaching um, approaching your environment or approaching your interactions with other people. And that's what it's all about with, with recovery. It's your interactions mm-hmm. with other people. If if we all lived in solitary, it wouldn't matter if we're alcoholic or not, or if we were recovering or not, or the the quality of our recovery because we don't have to interact. But because we do, um, and learning how to do that in a in a controlled environment like inpatient or intensive outpatient is is mm-hmm. an important step for many people. Some people do it in conjunction with a, a group self help. Other people do it instead of. Um, I think that statistically, it's borne out most. People um, who are successful in long-term recovery combine a element of the inpatient, outpatient, plus self-help groups, plus also have some spiritual belief or spiritual um, spirituality. Um, not mm-hmm. necessarily religion; mm-hmm. big difference between the two. But having mm-hmm. having a spiritual component to their lives is also um, important for recovery. Some people will find their spirituality in the gym. They'll, you know, they'll mm-hmm. become more health conscious, and that is their their newfound vigor in life. Other people find it through God or Allah or Buddha or whomever. And like I said, I don't care if it's crop circles that you're worshiping, as long as as that is a component of your recovery that is working for you and keeping you sober for this 24 hours. By all means, knock yourself out. I I, th- I truly believe that that your message is that. You cannot do this alone. Right. You That's, just can't. Uh, you know, I've, and I've you have heard... to. You've got to have a commit change. 
because attending meetings is it's time out of your day or your evening. You have to drive there. You've got to calendar it. You need self-discipline because you need to go on a consistent basis. Um, you're going to be forming relationships and support through those groups. Mm-hmm. But it's no different than our active drinking days because we had a routine. You say you can't bust off an hour to go to an AA meeting. Well, I bet you could find the time to drive down to the liquor store or to go sit in the bar with your buddies mm-hmm. for an hour. The, that mm-hmm. time commitment mm-hmm. is is a is a non sequitur. It just doesn't work. Um, you found the time. Um, here here's another outlet for the time because you're not drinking anymore. The the money mm-hmm. for treatment. Well, look at how much mm-hmm. on average you spend on a bottle of of whiskey or a twelve pack of beer. Multiply that out, or look at the health consequences mm-hmm. that uh, the positive health consequences from quitting. You know the improvement in your your mm-hmm. skin, your eyes, your your well-being, your breathing, and it all adds up to money saved versus the drinking days. So money is not a, really an object. And and having a fear of people, that's a big one for a lot of people. You know, the number one fear mm-hmm. in America is public speaking. And you know, you envision yourself sitting in this group, having to speak in front of them. My God, that's terrifying for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But you, nobody's required mm-hmm. to, to sit there and talk. It helps if you do, but what you find is the people that are most afraid to talk, all of a sudden, after a couple of weeks of going to meetings, all of a sudden they start opening up, and boom, something magical happens within them, whether it's their aha moment or they say, hey, I'm not so afraid of these people because I know them now. It, it takes a little bit mm-hmm. of time, but that that's... Uh, and that's one of the good things what Alcoholics Anonymous encourages is to do 90 meetings in 90 days, which is a, it's a huge commitment. Mm-hmm. But by the end of that 90 days, mm-hmm. you're a different person than you, you were when you started it. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that much. And, it, and that goes with anything you do on a, on a regular basis for a period like sure. that. You know, you're, you're, you're getting to become part of a community, and um, these all these self-help groups, no matter which flavor you select, they're all about being a community and supporting one another because we, as individuals, know what a beast of a disease this is to take on single-handedly. Because mm. we've all tried well, and failed. Scott Stevens, <laughs> you're a, an inspiration. I'm sure you're an inspiration to um, all alcoholics out there. And you've given us some invaluable information today. We are running out of time. I would like you to tell our listeners where they can purchase your book. And if you have some contact information, that would also be helpful. Sure. Your book is Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud, Relapse and the Symptoms of Sobriety. Mm Mm-hmm. It's available at all online retailers as an ebook, also as a paperback, and as a hardcover. You can check Barnes and Noble, Amazon. If um, if you just type in viewbook.at slash alcoholism, no matter where in the world you are, it's going to take you to your local Amazon site. But also just look up, type in the, the book name, Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud, and it will bring you to uh, the Scott Stevens page. And my book will be there for all the online retailers. It's also available at bricks-and-mortar retailers as well, but most of them you do have to go to their order desk, and they can get it in fairly quickly. It's um, 
like I said, available in hardcover, softcover, and ebook. I also have a website. It's www.alcohologist.com. That's alcohologist.com. And my email is on there as well. If you want to want to have a conversation with me or talk about what you're going through, I'm on. I, I watch my email regularly, and I enjoy interacting with other people that are going through the same struggles that I've gone through or that I'm going through. And it's uh, it is a day by day thing. There's no finish line to this, and I'm always glad to talk to people who are working toward their recovery or wondering about their recovery. And I've also got a Facebook page as well for Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud. It's just Facebook slash Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud. I'm on there quite a bit as well, sharing my my news reporting in addition to some some quotes from the book. And we've got a major promotion coming up uh, just day by day, tidbits throughout Alcohol Awareness Month, which is April. Thank you, Scott Stevens, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Denise. All right, listeners, we are ready to close our show. Um, certainly hope that you join us again next Wednesday, and um, we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.health medianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? Listeners, I just wanted to remind you the entire contents of this radio show is based upon the opinions of Denise and her guest. This information, it's not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional, and it's also not intended as medical advice. It's intended to share knowledge and information from our guest and the experience of Denise and her community. We encourage you to make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional of your choice. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Thank you. Good night.